You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, thank you, team, for leading us in that. We have been in a sermon series for several weeks now in the book of Genesis on the life of Jacob. I want to take a break from that for this week, and we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next Sunday. Back in May, we had our pulpit swap series on the theme of spiritual leadership. Joey Berkebein from Frankenmuth Bible Church was here. And talking about the importance of courage and trusting in God uh, as we face obstacles in our life and leadership. And Mark Hazen from Emmanuel Bible Church urged us toward a zeal for God's glory as a driving motivation and goal for our lives and leadership. But, well, we, we at that time were in the middle of a series on Proverbs that I didn't want to disrupt, so I never preached the message that I preached in that pulpit swap, the message I preached up in Saginaw and Frankenmuth. So this morning I want to take a break from our Jacob series, and before that series gets too far in the rearview mirror, I want to go back and talk with you this morning, finish that up on the topic of spiritual leadership. Uh, Mark looked at Phineas in the Old Testament book of Numbers as an example of leadership that is zealous for God's glory. Joey looked at, also in the Old Testament, David and Goliath as an example of courageous leadership that trusts in God to fight our battles. I want to look this morning in the New Testament at the Apostle Paul, who was an extraordinary leader, to see his approach to spiritual leadership, specifically to see how setting the right spiritual example is a central component, maybe the central component of transformative spiritual leadership. So turn in your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's page 981. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. We are this morning mostly going to focus on verses 12 to 15, but I want to start actually in verse 17 to give that some context. So look at Philippians 3, 17, and this is God's word. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at your word that your spirit who inspired these words would guide and teach and instruct and change us. I pray we would receive your words as true and good 
and we would respond in faith and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, spiritual leadership isn't really about titles. It isn't about being elected to some position in the church. It isn't even mostly about what you say or the instructions you might give. First and foremost, before it is anything else, spiritual leadership requires setting an example worthy of imitation. Spiritual leadership requires setting an example worthy of imitation, whether you're a pastor or an elder or a small group leader or an Awana or children's ministry volunteer, a, a parent, a, a grandparent. You're setting an example of one sort or another. Now, Paul is very bold. He says things we would be reluctant to say. How many of us would have the courage to say to someone else in our church or in our small group or in our class, how many of us would have the courage to say what he says to the Philippian church? He says, imitate me. Imitate my Christian life. Follow my example. Look at how I live and do that. Well, how many of us even feel qualified, worthy of saying such a thing? Most of us don't. And for that reason, many of us have effectively decided to, to kind of opt out of spiritual leadership. There is such a thing as spiritual leadership, we say, but not, not me. I'm not a spiritual leader. Right? We would say, no, you need to set your example higher than us. Find someone more worthy. But, but if leadership is fundamentally about influence, and it is, you can't really opt out of it. And if you care about the people in your life, you shouldn't want to. You shouldn't want to opt out. The question isn't whether you will be a leader. The question is, in what direction is your example, your leadership influencing people? It is influencing people, but in what direction. And Paul shows here, starting in verse 18, two contrasting ways that our spiritual leadership could lead people. He, he describes two groups of people, one group to avoid, one group to imitate. So he starts in verse 18 and verse 19, and he talks about people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. This group of people's minds, he says, are set on earthly things. There's a group of people setting an example, but their minds are focused on earthly things. He is not talking about people outside the church, godless evildoers only. He's not warning them, you know, don't follow the murderers and the rapists and the child abusers and the sex traffickers. No one's following them. That's not what he's saying. He's warning them about people who almost certainly claim to be following Christ. That's why he says he's warned them with tears. These are people that have been part of their group, people that had had an influence and continued to have an influence on people in the church, but, but their minds and hearts weren't really with Christ. It says their God is their belly. It's their appetites, their desires drive what they do and how they live. They claim to follow Christ, but really what they're following is whatever they really want. Their minds, he says, are set on earthly things. Don't follow their example. But there's a second group, starting in verse 
20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. There's another group, Paul says, we're looking and waiting for the return of Christ. Christ himself is the goal. Christ is the prize. We're living for him. And Paul says, you, you keep your eyes on these people. Imitate me and people like me, he says. Who, who, we're, not, we're not given over. Our minds aren't set on earthly things. No, we know our citizenship is in heaven. That's the kind of spiritual leadership Paul wants them to look at. So the question for us this morning is, well, which category are you in? Now, there could be someone here who says, look, my mind is totally set on earthly things. That's all I really care about. That's really, you know, I just follow Jesus or pretend to because I'm hoping he gives me good stuff. Hopefully there's not many people like that here this morning. And, and there could be people in the other category who are like, look, my mind is so focused on heavenly things. My citizenship is so in heaven that the Apostle Paul and I are basically the same person. But probably not too. And would that that were true. But probably most of us wouldn't claim that either. I think where most of us are, I think where most of us feel ourselves to be is, is here in the middle. Right? We, we want to be like this, heavenly-minded, our citizenship in heaven. Christ is our great aim and reward. But we feel ourselves drawn by the desires and cares of the world. It often pulls us away. So we feel ourselves to be in the middle. And so when it comes to spiritual leadership, what we feel is compromised. We just feel compromised. I'd like to be this kind of person. I'd like to be this kind of leader, but I'm drawn in this direction and I'm compromised. And I'm stuck in the middle. The good news for us this morning is that that's where Paul, the great apostle, sees himself too. I'm sure he's a step or two or three further this way than we are. But he understands himself to be caught in that same middle, to face the same struggles, the same temptations, the same trials and difficulties that we do. But unlike us too often, Paul doesn't let that discouragement stop him. He doesn't let, his, let it derail his spiritual leadership. Now, how does he do that? Well, thankfully... He tells us. We can learn from his example, and the answer is in the previous paragraph, starting in verse 12. See, Paul's going to tell us his mindset, his approach, that gives him spiritual credibility, makes him a fantastic spiritual example and leader. And it's not just for him. It's for you and us, you and us, you and I. It's for you and I, too. And I know that because he says so. Look at verse 15. After, in verses 12 to 14, he describes his approach. In verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, the way I think, my approach, he said, mature people think that way. That's how we think about this and approach this. Paul's saying, imitate my mindset, adopt my approach, follow my example to maturity. Look, if, if, if you and I follow Paul's example that he lays out for us here, we will become people worthy of being followed. We'll become spiritual leaders taking people in the right direction, leading people towards spiritual maturity, setting a spiritual example worthy of imitation. And, and listen, the, the church, the family, the people that God has put in your life need 
a spiritual example worthy of imitation. They need that. More than they need our words, as important as those are, they need an example worthy of imitation if they're going to see what it looks like to grow towards spiritual maturity. You know what it takes to mature, don't you? It takes change. It takes progress. Maturity is never achieved staying where you are. Maturity takes change and progress. And the, the critical insight from this passage here, as Paul describes his way of thinking, his approach, is this. Christian maturity for leadership is not a status we achieve. It's a race we must run. Spiritual maturity for leadership is not a status we achieve. It's a, pra- a race that we must run. Therefore, spiritual leadership, which requires maturity, is not about perfection, it's about direction. Not perfection, direction. Not perfection, but progress. And that's good news. If spiritual leadership required something like spiritual perfection, we would never get there. That would be so far, so distant from us. We would be years and years and years from that. But if spiritual perf- leadership doesn't demand perfection, but direction and progress, well, well, then we're each of us only one step away. One step away from moving into a, a spiritual leadership that encourages and helps people. Well, we could start today. So in verse 12 to 14, we get into Paul's mindset on how this happens for him and, and how it can happen for us. So five things quickly in here this morning. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 3. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Five things here to getting Paul's mindset and approach, to becoming a spiritual leader that helps and encourages people toward Christ. Here's the first. The first thing is you have to know where you are. You have to know where you are. You are in a race. A race. Uh, This language of pressing on and straining forward is the language of athletics, of of racing. That's the metaphor, the imagery that Paul is taking up here. Not that spiritual maturity is a competition. That's not healthy. And it's not that it's a sprint either. It's more like the Badwater 135. Have you heard of it? I think maybe I talked with you a little bit about this some time ago. The Badwater 135 is an ultra-marathon. It's... uh, 135-mile foot race. It's in California. It starts in the Badwater Basin of Death Valley, a couple hundred feet below sea level. It ends about 8,300 feet of elevation on Mount Whitney, so almost a two-mile vertical climb over the course of the race. It's 135 miles in the California desert in July. And it's a competition, these are great runners. They want to win. But at some level, the race is, is against yourself, against the elements. It's, it's in some ways, it's a battle against the desire to quit. It's, 
some ways it's about survival. The biggest goal is to finish and to survive. You know, nobody running the Badwater 135 is unaware that they're in a race, right? The race officials never driving along in their Prius and see a bunch of runners sitting at a card table on the side of the road playing euchre, right? They, they, they know they're in a race. They know they've got to keep moving. They, they know they've got to press on toward the end. They don't forget they're in a race, but, but I think we often do. I think we often do. Too many Christians have a, a truncated view of the Christian life. Well, I prayed to ask Christ in my heart, so I'm a Christian now, and that's, you know, I kind of go on about the rest of my life as though there was nothing left, as though there was nothing more, as, there was no, as if there were no progress that needed to be made, no goal toward which we are striving. So far too many people aren't making any progress. They're content to stay right where they are, watching, uh, watching other people run, forgetting that they're in a race at all. You have to know where you are. You're in a race, and the race isn't done. We haven't finished it yet. Paul says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, he says, brothers, I don't consider I've made it my own. Paul, Paul has about the most impressive spiritual resume you will ever find. He is a unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer, but he doesn't rest on that. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to take it easy. I'm not going to press on. I mean, who's, what other Christian has attained what I've already obtained? He's not content. He doesn't think he's arrived. He doesn't say, well, I'm doing better than most people. He's pressing on. And it won't be till the very end of his life. We read in 2 Timothy, at the very end of his life, he'll finally say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. But until then, he presses on. Remember, Christian maturity isn't a status we achieve. It's a race we have to run. Not about perfection, but about direction. You know, in all sorts of areas of our life, we long to get over the hump, right? We long to get to the point where we no longer have to give attention or effort or work to something. We just want it to be finished. You know, I think I've said before, like with my house, I think if I could just get these three projects done, my house would basically maintain itself. But you know that's not true. You get those done and there's four more waiting for you and it's just on and on. You just, more work, always more to do. The Christian life is like that as well. You don't ever get to the hump. You never get over the hump. You never get to the point where the spiritual life, we just cruise control, we're coasting downhill. No more effort, no more work. It's a race. It's not done. We have to press forward all the way to the end. So Paul says, and repeats himself for emphasis, he says, I've not arrived yet. The most impressive spiritual resume you will ever find, Paul says, I'm still pressing forward. I'm not there yet. I've got to keep striving on toward Christ. We have to know where we are in a race we must run that isn't finished yet. We also need to remember how we got here. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ has made me his own. Paul's pressing toward maturity, toward a deeper, fuller relationship with Jesus. He wants to, as he says earlier in the chapter, he wants to know Christ. He wants to gain him and be found in him. That's what he's striving so hard after. But what motivates and strengthens him is to press on because Christ has made me his own. Paul understands that his going after Christ is only possible because Christ has already gone after him. You remember Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Paul's on the road to Damascus. 
He's a sworn enemy of Jesus. He wants to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And on the way to Damascus, who does he meet? Jesus, which is not who he's looking for. But Jesus comes looking for him. And it entirely upends and reshapes and redirects Paul's entire life. He goes from the church's greatest enemy to its greatest missionary. He remembers that for the rest of his life. He knew what we so easily forget, that any work we might do in and for Christ is only possible because Christ has already worked in us. Here's where I think that's important for Paul and for us, why it can help and motivate and encourage us. Because when the race gets difficult, and it will, we'll be tempted to throw in the towel. We'll question whether it's worth it to persevere, to press forward through trials and troubles. We'll, we might blame God. We might blame other people for the trouble. We, we might end up blaming ourselves. And we'll start to question, am I real? Am I really in Christ? Am I really following him? Why is it so hard? But Paul doesn't get discouraged like that. He looks back at his conversion and says, no, I know Jesus has come after me. And so he could say, as he said to the Philippians, he would say to us, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. Christ has come for us. He doesn't give up on us. Paul uses that and motivates him to continue on and press on for Christ. Here's the third thing. Remember where we are. We're in a race. Remember how we got here. Christ work in our hearts and lives. The third thing is forgetting where you were. Verse 13, Paul says, one thing I do. And in verse 14, he's going to tell us what the one thing is. But first, he qualifies it with two phrases. The first one is this, I, uh, forgetting what lies behind. What happens when a runner in a race turns back to see where he's come from? Nothing good. Nothing good. You don't turn around in a race. Kids do this. Kids run, you know, our kids have run at various times and they run and they look at you and they do this and you just say, well, no, you, you've got to watch where you're going. Keep your eyes in front of you. Looking behind can slow you down and trip you up. Here's what it looks like in running our Christian race. Some of us look back and all we see are our mistakes and our failures and our shortcomings. The sins we've committed, the poor choices we've made, the, the mess we've sometimes made of things, the way we've disappointed others the way we've disappointed ourselves, the, the way we've disappointed God, and we get discouraged. We, we want to give up, and we're prepared to settle for mediocrity. We think that's, that's just the best. A mediocre is about the best that I could ever be, given my past, given my history, given my mistakes. And what happens here is we've lost sight of the gospel that Paul clings to. You, you know, don't you, that gospel means good news. See, we get confused. We start to think the gospel is, well, if your spiritual resume is impressive enough, if your spiritual attainments are substantial enough, if your record is clean enough, well, then God probably will have you. But that's not the gospel. That's not good news. The gloriously good news of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, when we were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. By grace, we have been saved. The gospel is good news for sinners and screw-ups like us. So we don't need to obsess about our past. We don't need to keep turning around to look at it and let it slow us down. 
It's not that the past doesn't matter. It's that Christ is on the cross has already taken care of it. So, so listen, we have nobody to impress, nothing to prove. We have nobody to impress and nothing to prove. Don't let your past sins and mistakes and struggles distract you from the prize, from running the race set before you. Don't let them discourage you and make you lose heart. Don't believe the devilish, damnable lie that your past, future is defined by your past. If you've trusted in Christ, his sacrifice, his righteousness, his promises, that defines your future. So we've got to let the past go. You can accomplish, no matter what your past looks like, everything God wants you to accomplish in this life because of Christ. There's nobody to impress, nothing to prove. Jesus' death was enough. We don't need to try to help him atone for our sins by wallowing in guilt despair and discouragement. It's the enemy that brings our sin and our past back to us, not Christ. So don't look at your past and let it slow you down. Look forward to Christ. So, so forgetting what lies behind, and he goes on, here's the fourth thing, striving for what lies ahead. The fourth thing is fighting for progress. Fighting for progress. He says in verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead. You know, like a, lun a runner lunging, moving toward the finish line. See, for Paul, having nobody to impress and nothing to prove isn't an excuse for him to do nothing, to be passive, carefree, and unmotivated. Rather, it frees him up from entanglements in the past so that he can press on hard, aggressively toward Christ. He doesn't expect progress toward maturity to be easy like we often do. We want it to be easy. We want to get over the hump. We want to put it in cruise control. We want our, our spiritual growth to be downhill. But it's not downhill. It's uphill. It's always a striving. And Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself or discipline yourself for godliness. It requires effort. Ian, our three-year-old son, has a favorite book. It's called Going on a Bear Hunt. How many of you know the story, Going on a Bear Hunt? Well, it's a, great, it's a great little story. He loves that book. In fact, if we're going on a hike somewhere, we say to Ian, you want to go on a bear hunt? And he loves to go on it. He, well, he's, I think there's a slight leeriness that there actually will be a bear at the end of the hike like there is at the end of the book, but, but he still, he likes to go on bear hunts. You know, the story is about a family who's headed outdoors on an adventure, and they keep encountering new and challenging environments. And when they reach one, it's kind of an obstacle. And they say, well, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. And so they get to a, a field of tall, wavy grass. Well, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. They come to thick, oozy mud. Then they come to a cold, fast river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. They come to a deep, dark forest, a fierce snowstorm. And every time, can't go over it. Can't go under it. We've got to go through it. They press on through each one. Fight for progress as they go on their bear hunt. You know, progress in the Christian life is a lot like that. There are obstacles. There are discouragements, frustrations, temptations, failures. There are always obstacles. And you can't go over them. And you can't go under them. You've got to go through them. There's no other way. You have to press on through them. 
You have to fight right through it for progress in following Christ. You have to strain for what lies ahead. Paul's forgetting his past, but it's not an excuse for him to do nothing. He strains forward after Christ. He's self-controlled, self-disciplined, pressing on towards the goal. That's the fifth thing. The fifth thing for Paul here is he's focused on the goal. Look at verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the strength. That's the power. That's the motivation that propels us forward to race for the finish. The prize is Jesus himself. He's what we're after. He's the goal. So the fight for us is to see Jesus himself as exceedingly precious. Worth forgetting our past. Worth straining on ahead. Because we're focused on the prize. Striving. Straining forward toward Christ. If we don't see Christ himself as a great and all-satisfying reward, we won't persevere well in this race. We won't strive toward maturity. We will be constantly looking back. We won't press forward. Uh, we won't be a good godly example or spiritual leader worth following. We'll be distracted. We'll be, we'll be looking around for another reward, and we'll get off track. So the great fight is to see and know Christ as exceedingly precious, as a very great reward. So, to be a spiritual leader worth following, you need to commit yourself to Paul's approach, to his way of thinking, not perfection, direction. An earnest, motivated striving toward maturity and Christ-likeness. Maybe an example of what I mean. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just a few pages toward the back of your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. A few months back, Steve and Janie Slagle were out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a cruise ship, not just bobbing along, cruising across the ocean. I was thinking about that, and it, it occurred to me that as, as you take off on a cruise ship, you know, pull out of Fort Lauderdale, right, and as, as you, you see the, the coastline behind you, the beach and the trees and the people and the buildings, as you see them getting smaller and smaller, you realize, hey, we're making progress. We're moving. We're headed where we need to go. And then as, as you're approaching Spain on the other side, and as the beach and the people and the trees and the buildings get bigger and bigger, you say, hey, we're moving. We're making progress. We're getting closer. But in between there is 4,000 miles of water. And all you see in every direction is water. And you don't really know if you're moving or making progress or not. There's, there's no landmarks. There's, there's nothing to see. Now, if there was an island in your path, you'd see and say, oh, look, there's an island. And as it gets bigger and as it eventually comes by, you say, oh, we're, we're moving. But, but you need some kind of landmark to tell that you're moving and that you're making progress. Well, well look what Paul says to Timothy, his young protege here in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. Command and teach. Spiritual leadership will often require talk. But he goes on, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Look down at verse 15. Practice these things 
immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul says to Timothy, you, you need to be making progress and people need to see it. Paul pastors the church in Ephesus. And he says, look, listen, or Timothy does. Paul says to Timothy, listen, you, you need to be making progress and people need to see that you're growing. Why? Because people are following your example. And if you're not moving, they probably won't move either. I think for many of us, far too much of our spiritual journey is spent out in the middle of the ocean with no visible landmarks. We're, we're just kind of bobbing along. We don't know if we're getting anywhere or not. And in waves of discouragement or disillusionment or trouble come and begin to shake us. And we don't know what's up. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we're going. We need some kind of landmark that tells us, hey, we're moving in the right direction. We're making progress. What if, what if you begin to prayerfully pursue progress in the direction of godliness? Well, in what areas? Well, we could take Paul's categories for Timothy here as a good start. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Take speech, for example. Maybe the way that you talk is critical, complaining, negative, vulgar even, not controlled by the Spirit of Christ. And, and God wants to work in your life to make progress. So speech becomes kind of like an island that's off in the distance. My, my speech needs a lot of work. I need a lot of progress. And what I want to do is I want to see that island getting closer. I want to see myself growing so that my speech is less critical, less complaining, less negative, less vulgar. I'm making progress. I'm encouraged by it because I can see it. And, and other people can see it too. They can see me growing even in just this one area and see that I'm making progress toward Christ and Christ-likeness. I mean, what if, what, if, uh, what if every person in our church was praying and asking God, what, what island do you want to move me towards? What area of spiritual growth, maturity, and progress do you want to move me to grow in this year? An area that I'm praying about or memorizing scripture about that the people are praying for me about. Where is it, God, that you want to grow and mature me right now? In what direction should I be pressing on toward Christ, toward spiritual growth? Because I, I want to be a spiritual leader. I want to influence others to follow Christ. I, I want to be making visible progress. Look, you can't work on everything at once. But you can find one island, one thing. I'm working toward this. As God leads me and convicts me and challenges me, I'm moving toward this island. I'm moving toward growth in this. I want to see progress. I want to start with just one thing. Look, if you and I start praying that prayer, God is going to answer it because he is invincibly committed to making us more like Jesus, to growing and maturing us in our faith. In 2005, Scott Jurek signed up to run the Badwater 135. Scott Jurek was one of the greatest runners in the country, maybe one of the greatest runners in the world. His signature race was called the Western States 100, a 100-mile ultramarathon through the woods and the mountains uh, in California and Oregon. Uh, he'd won it seven years in a row. He held the, the U.S. 
uh, any surface record for most miles run in a 24-hour period, 165 miles. One of the greatest ultra-marathoners in the world, but he'd never run Badwater before. So in 2005, he decided to try. He was the most famous runner in the race, and it was, of course, hot. Death Valley in July, runners are trying to stay on the white lines on the road so the soles of their shoes don't melt. Well, 60 miles into the race, Scott Jurek, greatest ultra-marathoner in the world, collapses on the side of the road, throwing up. He can't see the leaders of the race ahead of him anymore. He doesn't realize quite how bad it is, but they're, they're over 12 miles ahead of him in this race. They're not amateurs. These are the best runners in the world. And as he lay there on the side of the road, throwing up in this amazing heat, he said to himself, I'm not going to win this race. I, he said, I, I would have to do something sick to win this thing now. And he was right, of course. He's way behind. Feels terrible. And as he lay there, with, with his hopes of winning this race basically down the drain, he said to himself, the only way I could conceivably win this race would be to get up from here, pretend I was getting up from the best night of sleep I've ever had, and then run the fastest 75 miles of my life. The truth, of course, is that he wasn't getting up from the best night of sleep he'd ever had. He was at the end of 60 miles, and he felt terrible. I'm not a runner, but if you're running a race and you're lying on the side of the road throwing up, that can't be a good spot. He wasn't off to a good start at all, way behind with a long ways to go. I'd have to pretend I just got the best night of sleep ever, forget the first 60 miles of this race, which kicked my butt, and run the last 75 miles like I've never run before. So, so after laying on the side of the road for 10 minutes, Scott Durick got up and ran like he'd never run before. And over the next 75 miles, he not only caught up to and passed all the other runners, he shattered the course record. Well, what was the foundation for that? Well, incredible will, incredible strength and determination, incredible striving on. But it started with forgetting about the first 60 miles. Forget about that disaster and just press hard toward the goal. Listen, many of us are, are settling for a kind of spiritual mediocrity, both in our growth and in our leadership, because we feel like the first 60 miles of our race haven't been that great. We feel like we're lying on the side of the road. We can't go on. There's no way we can win now. Maybe it's failures in our past. Maybe it's a deep disillusionment with the spiritual experiences or, or spiritual leaders we've had in the past. Maybe it's a long habit of spiritual mediocrity. We just feel like we can't break. Maybe it's the sense we've wasted too much time. We're getting much too late a start. And we settle for a kind of spiritual mediocrity, both in our lives and in our leadership. What Paul would tell us to do is forget what lies behind. You have to leave it in the past. You have to entrust it to Christ. You need to press on to strive forward toward Christ. You say, well, I don't have Scott Jurek's inner will or determination or strength to press on. And that's true. You probably don't, but you have something better if you're in Christ. 
the inner presence of the Spirit of the living God who is invincibly, powerfully committed to forming you in the image of His Son. You don't need to supply the power. He'll do that. What you and I need to do is put one foot in front of the other every day and strive forward towards Christ. If you do that, if you begin to press on toward Christ, even in just one area this year, you're becoming a spiritual leader worth following. Most of the people in your life are floating in the middle of the sea with no landmarks, making no progress with no good example to follow. If you start to move, even in one area toward Christ, people will see you moving and get in line. They'll say, that's the direction we need to go, towards Christ. You're moving, I'll go with you. Just one area. Not perfection, progress, which means you can start today. You don't have to get all your ducks lined up in a row. You don't have to fix everything that's wrong in your spiritual life or in your relationships. You get to start moving in one direction. Take one step. You can start today. Even if your past is littered with mistakes and failures, even if your record up till now has been mediocre, that's okay. You can take a step today. What a blessing it would be, not just to you, to your family, to your church, to all the people that God has put in your life, if you went home from here earnestly praying, God, what island are you moving me towards right now? In what way, in what area specifically are you working in my life to make me more like Christ? The people in your home and family and church and life don't need you to be perfect to be a spiritual leader worth following. They need to see you moving. You need to see you moving. Not perfection, direction. Not perfection, progress. Father, I pray for every person here this morning. We, we need this word. We need this encouragement. We need this power and strength. Lord, we get tired. We get discouraged. We stop straining forward toward Christ. We settle for spiritual mediocrity. We leave the people that you've put into our lives to, to look elsewhere for spiritual leadership and encouragement an example. Father, I pray that that would change. I pray for each person here this morning. Every person here has people in their life, areas, places, domains within their life that they exercise influence and set an example for good or worse. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that each of us would commit ourselves to seeking, to praying, to asking you, Father, where is it that you want to move and change me and make me Lord more like Christ? What is that island? What is that direction that you want me to make progress in by your grace and with your power and in your strength? Father, I pray each person here would commit themselves to asking you this and keep asking you this until you show us where you want to grow us and change us. Father, help us not to demand of ourselves or each other perfection, when what you call us to is progress. So help us to strain forward in faith because of what you've already done on the cross and what you've promised to do for us in glory. I pray that Springview would be a church of people encouraged, joyful, 
straining on to grow more like Christ, encouraging and helping one another. I pray this in Jesus' name.